Amen. Go and have a seat, church. Way to praise the Lord this morning. Uh, that's, that's how we want to do it. Way to pour it out before the Father. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 6 today. If you have a Bible, Bible app, go ahead and get it warmed up. We are back, my wife and I are, uh, from the Holy Land. So somewhere in about the next hour, I'm going to hit the wall. Uh, so if I just pass out on stage uh, from jet lag or whatever, uh, plus I lost an hour of sleep last night, the one-two punch, uh, just pray for us. We're going to get through just fine. Nine was great, uh, but we'll see. The wall is rapidly approaching. I can feel it. Uh, but my spirit is full. Uh, we got the chance to walk in the footsteps of Jesus everywhere from uh, Caiaphas's house and seeing the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus to Herod's uh, temple and palaces to Jericho, the oldest city in the world, some believe, uh, where the, we want people marched around the walls of baptism site of Jesus. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. And so to be there is just so amazingly powerful that, uh, you know, we want to take a group from church next year. I think Marcus alluded to that last week. So next spring, right around this time of the year, it'll be end of February, beginning of March. Uh, we're going to take a group of you. Uh, and let's go experience that together. It'll be a really uh, awesome, wonderful thing to be a part of, and I want to encourage you to do it. Totally meaningful and awesome uh, in every way. So, uh, also, a couple of quick things. MDU starts this Wednesday night, Advanced Introduction to the New Testament. So we're going to do some biblical backgrounds uh, and some of those kinds of things to help us when we open our Bibles to be able to uh, understand what we're reading a little bit better and allow it to, to, to speak to us in 3D and 4D even uh, as we as we read it. So now uh, just we'll go about an hour, uh, three weeks. So if you, you, you do the first week and you really hate it, then, then, uh, then you only have two more weeks. So look at it that way. Now it won't be bad. Uh, it'll be good, I hope. And uh, something that'll really be a blessing to you as you open the word of God and, and continue to study it uh, together. And then April 3rd, and we're going to be talking a lot about baptism today, but that's Baptism Sunday. So just uh, put that in the back of your head. If you've already been baptized and you want to just come out and show support, it's awesome to be a part of. Um, if you have not, I, I really want you to, and I'll just lay my cards on the table this morning and say, please consider doing that post-haste, April 3rd at the latest, all right, um, for reasons that will become apparent, all right. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks a lot about baptism. He starts with the gospel, right? Romans 1. God is super righteous, more righteous than you can fathom. His level of righteousness is just an entirely different level. Uh, then we have uh, our uh, lack of righteousness, if you will. What's up, Dan? Um, so then we're not, right? So you've got righteous God, unfathomably so, and our unrighteousness. And he draws this in very stark terms so that we will go, okay, what do I need to do then? What, what, what's my response to this? If God is that righteous and I'm that not righteous, then how does that gap get closed? And the answer is God closes it himself because of his great love for us and because he wants to be reunited uh, with us in, in fellowship that he sends Jesus not just to sacrifice for our sins, but that we might be given a new way of life and a new power by which to live. All right, so... That's kind of the, the broader context here, and it, but it does raise the question, okay, if God's done it all, then why would I just not live the way that I wanted to? If it doesn't really impact my quote-unquote salvation, then, then why, would I, why would I do what God wants me to do? Why don't I just live the way that I want to live? 
And so that's really what Paul is trying to take up in Romans chapter 6. And so he doesn't, I mean, he acknowledges, the Bible does throughout, that we're sinful people. And it doesn't matter if God tells us not to do something. The first man and first woman were told, you have the entire earth, do what you want, just don't eat that. They had one job, okay, and they failed. Okay, we are, we are by nature rebellious in spirit and heart against God. And so just because God says it or there's a command, no matter how, how narrow the command may be or how, uh, how much open range God gives us, we will find a way to rebel against him. It's just the way that we're, we're wired. Our flesh has a propensity to fail. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Not a saint, not, that includes you, by the way. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Now, what that does, it can lead you to think a couple of different heresies. They're not altogether wrong, but one would be the uh, nobody's perfect mindset. This is the big one in our culture, right? Hey, nobody's perfect. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We're all this. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That comes from Romans, in fact. But you sit there and and we all just kind of basically say, hey, you know what, we're all, uh, we all break the law. So, uh, you know, hey, you, know, you break the law, I break the law. We all break the law. Nobody's perfect. So when you break the law, breaking the law is not, big of a, not that big of a deal, right? Well, okay, so that's, that's one way. And we kind of do it by saying nobody's perfect. So what we do is we set the bar down to the righteousness of one another. I compare myself to you. You compare yourself to me and the people around you. But the problem is that's not the biblical standard. The biblical standard is we're compared to the righteousness of God, which is a totally different standard. So if you use that standard, guess what? Uh, we fall well short of the righteousness of God. All right? So the nobody's perfect mindset. Now, that is kind of the warped child of a heresy birth in the early church that said, if God's grace isn't earned, then sinning must not be a big deal to God because there's nothing we can do to earn points with God. Uh, the way this manifests itself would be similar to when my wife and I, when our kids first started to come of age where they could stay at home by themselves, and we could sneak out, get a bite to eat together. We might leave them at home, and we'd order pizza for them. And they'd, we'd say, all right, now listen, don't trash the house, okay? Oh, we want mom. They would say. We'd come home. They'd trash the house. Their pizza box is laying around. There's paper plates everywhere or whatever, and uh, cups and dishes. And so we would go, guys, come on, man. Like, we were gone two hours. Like, how can you do this to a house in two hours even unless you're trying so we'd come home, we'd like help pick it up when they were younger, and then old, when they got older, then we'd make them pick it up or whatever. But it wasn't like a deal breaker. It wasn't like, you know what, hey, call the orphanage and tell them we got three coming. We're, we're coming in. We're not, you know, nobody, nobody took it that seriously. It's just kind of a, you know. And I, 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 I think people bring that approach to God. It's like, hey, you know, God doesn't take it that seriously. After all, his priority is me and him being together. So if I sin a little bit here and there, he expects it. And after all, nobody's perfect, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, what I do with my body, what I do with my mind, what I do in my daily life, really doesn't matter a whole lot. What matters to God is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and so he died so that I don't have to. What Paul's going to say is, no, he died so you get to. Huge difference. He takes baptism. 
something that if you're new to the faith probably sounds extremely boring. Baptism. Baptized, as uh, the old preachers used to say. And he says, if you really want to know how to tap into the power of God's Spirit in your daily life, if you want to know what it's like to really live, then it means you got to really die. And you really die when you give your life to Jesus in baptism. Those who are baptized into Christ have been crucified with him, and if we died to sin, then we can't live in it anymore. We are no longer slaves to sin, but instead we're slaves to Jesus who has raised us to new life. So Romans chapter 6, to the question of, okay, can I just go on sinning? Here's what Paul says. He says, well then, Romans 6 verses 1 to 4, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. All right, so we're going to pull, we're going to walk our way through Romans 6 a little bit today and kind of try to follow his train of thought. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, I think he does a really good job. It's almost so clear that I could read you the text and then say, you got it? And you could say, yeah, Tim, I got it. And then we could just say, okay, great, and let, let's all go home. But I'm going to unpack it a little bit further. He starts here, he says, listen, when you were baptized, you were set free from sin, not to sin. The gospel lets us know how seriously God actually takes sin. Seriously enough that it took the sacrifice of his son on his behalf. I mean, he sacrifices his own son to deal with the problem of sin in our lives. If sin was not that big of a deal, then the death of Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. And we could have worked our way back into God's graces somehow. Like you come home and the pizza boxes are everywhere. Like I said before, well, the next time I come home and they, they, they uh, cleaned out the car too. And there are no pizza boxes this time. And there's a little uh, card saying, hey, Dad, I'm sorry I left the pizza boxes out the last time you and Mom went out. Oh, okay, everything's great. No, that's not what this is. And that's not how God looks at sin. He doesn't look at our sin as an oopsie. It's an altogether magnificently, unfathomably holy God facing sin, which to him, because of his righteousness, is infinitely more repugnant and, and uh, evil to him than it could ever be to us. Now, we, because of who we are and, and we're created in the image of God and we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can look at things that go on in the world and we go, that's wrong, that's evil, that's sinful, that shouldn't happen. And we feel injustice or we feel angry or compelled to do something about it. Okay, but that's still so much less than the way that God feels when we are, when, when he looks upon our sin. Because we're just not that righteous. We smell like sin. We're just sinful in our nature. We're not altogether sinful. We're not originally sinful. We are sinful in nature. But what God says is, I'm not just going to atone for your sins. I'm going to put to death your old sinful self and your old sinful nature 
and raise you again to a new life. Just like my son was crucified and was raised again to new life, that's what I'm going to do with you. Your old self and all the baggage there to appertaining. It's amazing. I mean, and, and we know that grace by its nature is stronger than law. I mean, we seem to think sometimes I think that law has more power than it does. I mean, I don't know how many of you live in a neighborhood with a homeowner's association. Uh, homeowner's associations are great to control your neighbors, but you do not want them controlling you. I remember, we, uh, I don't know, many years ago, we moved into a, a new neighborhood, and it wasn't very long when we moved into the house. We got sighted because there was some paint chipping on our garage door. I mean, you had, to, you had to walk up and look at it. It wasn't like you're driving down the street and, and it looked like some Sanford and Son episode. It was, it was, the garage door looked fine. There was just some paint chipping up there, and we were probably were going to take care of it at some point. It wasn't a big deal. But by the time we get out of the U-Haul, here we go. Boom. The neighborhood is a section 27.821 of the Homeowners Association Code states that. da 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 Now, you know what would have been nice? A, let it go for a little bit, see if we take care of it, and then do something. Or, if it really bothered the neighbor, have them come over and say, hey, need some help with your garage door? You going to help me paint it? Yeah, I'll help you. Get it done that way. You know how uninspired I was? You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go get like a lathe and just scrape the door until all the paint chips fell on the ground and just leave it like that. I wanted to do something. I wanted to put in my driveway, spray paint, take this H-O-A and underline it in like red spray paint in my driveway. I wanted to go knock paint off everybody else's garage doors, right? There's that part of me that says, there's law, you're going to try to control me by law, then I'm going to push against it. If you just said something I was doing bothered you or whatever, I might care. And if I didn't care, I might pretend like I cared and then do something about it. You know, we got we a deal now in the house we live in now where, you know, some guy has a, has a I'm going to tow you if you park in front of my house sign, in front of his house. It's like, dude, why don't you just say, hey, I'd appreciate it if you left that so that my second car could park in front of my house. Okay. But we always got to do law. And we never learn that the law doesn't work. Remember this one? Let's take God's greatest hits album, the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. That should have been it, right? The law is powerful. Once he says it, it's over. You shall not covet. Okay? So nobody covets anything. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have any other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I might count we're over four. Now we can keep going, but we all recognize that law in and of its nature. Hey, remember when masks were required, everybody wore them, right? Sorry, too soon. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You can't just legislate your way to righteousness. 
And in our case, it's even worse because we as lawmakers are not just lawmakers. We, we're, not, we're not even just in how we make laws. And so what God is saying, and Paul is trying to say, now I, I, normally I would say don't do this, but at least it's the same author. So if you, if you can bookmark Romans and go over to the book of Galatians, Paul makes the same argument to the church of Galatia. Guys, it's not the gospel and circumcision that allows you to be justified in the sight of God. It's the gospel, period. Period. Because it's stronger, it's made of stronger stuff than the law is. The law had its purposes, and that was to train us and get us to Jesus. But now that he's here, okay, now that Christ has come, we now follow and walk by the Spirit. And because we walk by the Spirit, guess what? You're not under the law anymore. You are under the Spirit. And like he says here, you are now a slave to Jesus. You were a slave to sin before. Now you're a slave to Christ. So, proverbially speaking, he says, obey your new master who is better and more righteous than the law, has more power than the law. There was a researcher, uh, an expert who did a, and they did an experiment of petrified forests in Arizona. The park had a problem, so they decided they were going to try and scare everybody. I guess take the homeowners association approach. They put up a warning sign and it said this, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft. Losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. So that's what greeted you at the trailhead. And they were trying to figure out why people kept stealing the wood. So it appealed to their sense of moral outrage. In typical modern day fashion, hyperbole was present. Your heritage is being vandalized? I mean, we've got to personalize it. We can't just say, hey, stop taking the wood. Your heritage is being vandalized. Okay. My heritage is a tree in a forest I'm visiting. Gotcha. Theft, loss. Okay, so they keep doing this whole thing. They, they, uh, they decide they're going to do an experiment. So there are two trailheads. They decide they're going to take one trailhead, and they're not going to put a sign at all. Okay? And then on some trails they would put some warning people not to steal. I want you to guess which trail more wood was stolen from. Three times more wood was stolen from the trail with the sign saying don't steal the wood. So they were trying to figure out, okay, why is it that people did it? And what they realized was they were sending kind of mixed messages. Uh, he was trying to figure out what the, what the reason was, and he said that even though it was designed to send a moral message, it may have sent a different message, something like, wow, the petrified wood is going fast. I better get mine now. Or 14 tons a year? Well, surely it's not going to matter then if I take a few pieces, right? And that's how stuff works. Everybody cheats on their taxes. It ain't going to bother if I do a little bit too. Everybody's doing it. Yep. Hey. All men look at pornography. Well, it's a little bit. It doesn't matter. I mean, take your pick, right? The, the lowest common denominator, hey, we're all not perfect. That becomes the morality by which we live our lives. And what Paul is saying is, no, you've been crucified. 
And if you're not really living the way that Jesus has called you to live, then the reality is you probably never died all the way. You, you went wounded or something, but you never really died. Because if you really died, you'd really be living. You know, Jesus talks about when he's walking the earth, he's, you know, look, the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. You try to save your life, you're going to lose it. You lose it for my sake, you'll find it. If you want to really live, then you've got to really die. As he continues, he'll say, we are what we serve. Romans 6, 12 to 14. He says, don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Notice how he says whole body. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Okay? You don't pursue this, not that. There's duality. So, I remember hearing N.T. Wright at one point use this illustration. He said, picture an animal that you're terrified of. So, we have any arachnophobes in the house? I hate spiders. Okay, there's a few. The rest of you are lying. But that's okay. Uh, picture that uh, as soon as, or as you sit here, from the ceiling of the Ritz, down comes a tarantula, which is right here, and opens itself on your face. Yeah, I know. Now, now everybody's squirming, and you were asleep. Now you're awake, right? Tarantulas? I got tarantulas in there. Uh, or uh, you might be a snake person. Imagine that uh, you, you, you go home, you're going to take your Sunday afternoon nap, you pull the covers back, and there's a snake in your bed, a rattlesnake, okay, or a cobra. See, we got, we got panic going down here. Everybody's like, stop, man, stop. That's the point. What Wright is saying is, I mean, a, a rhinoceros is going to break through the rich lobby, come in here and stampede us all. Whatever your fear is, or a clown, I guess it doesn't have to be an animal, a clown, all right? A clown. <laughs> a clown, a scary clown. Uh, he comes in. You want to run away from it. Just like you with a tarantula. I'm an avid hiker, and I love going hiking, especially in the summer when it's really hot. It's also peak snake season. So three, four times a year, I'll be out there, and there'll be a, a little rattlesnake out there to keep me company. I have my AirPods in sometimes, but I let the pass-through noise in so I can hear if there's an animal or something around me. But on the occasion that I've gotten really close to a snake and I can hear the rattle, you know what I don't do? Stay there. I run. I move quickly. Don't play around with it. Don't hug it. I don't go, oh man, look. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to infringe on his turf by stepping on his head or, or killing him or whatever when he's rattling and basically saying, I will kill you shortly if you don't move. I take off. If I was ter terrified of spiders, and I'm, I'm, I have a wife and three daughters, so I am the spider killer in our house, no matter what the size is or species, the big doesn't matter. 
I'm the spider killer, right? I don't see them wanting to go cuddle with the spider, keep it as a pet. That's how we're supposed to treat sin. Now I want you to think of something else. I want you to think of a person that you love the most in this world. And they may be already with the Lord. They may have passed already. But somebody that you love more than anybody. And you see them. What do you do? You run away? Probably not. You shriek? No. Probably more like those videos you see on YouTube where the dad has just gotten back from being deployed and the kid doesn't know the dad's going to be there and the blindfold comes off and they see the dad and they just, you know, pounce on the dad and hug him and cry and everything like that. I've even seen dogs do that. Have you seen those videos where the dog sees its owner for the first time and whatever and they just boom. What, what Paul is saying there about baptism and sin is really what you're supposed to do is flee sin like it's a terrifying presence in your life that can hurt you. Because it is. And you're supposed to be running toward Jesus like you would the person you have the most affection for in this world. And the more that I put it in those terms as opposed to Hey, yeah, so I, I, I left a few pizza boxes laying around the house. Sorry, Lord. And then Jesus is somebody who's just kind of always there. You know, he's, he's, he's there at my side and everything. And I'm glad he's there, don't get me wrong, but he's more like a, a driver. You know, I'm glad he's there to take me from here to there and do things like that. But I'm not really connected to him. Okay, what, what he's offering us is so much greater than that. It's a change of heart and life that when we're baptized, he's saying, listen, you, you got to go, you got to go down all the way. You got to die all the way. And if you're willing to die all the way, spiritually speaking, then you could be raised all the way. So the life you want, the life that God wants for you and the whole point and purpose of Jesus dying in the manner in which he did was so that you could live that way. Not somebody who just plays around with the the spiders and the and stuff of the world, but but somebody who is a force to be reckoned with, a person who is living their life on mission, who's living a holy life, and not holy because they're terrified of what God is going to do to them if they slip. They're living a holy life because now they understand, A, they're walking by the Spirit, and so the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Right? And then the works of the flesh, but the flesh is dead. It's dead. Now the problem with us, some of us got a little zombie in us, right? We got put down at one point, and then we, we try to get back up, but not, not alive. Moving around, but still dead. Living like we're still dead. And what God is saying is, no, my, my son who who is buried and then raised to new life, that's what baptism is. It's an illustration of that reality. So to really live, we must really die. Imagine with me, if you would, what a difference it would make in your life 
if you could simply rid your heart and actions of one sin. Pick one. Some of us got a wallet full of things we wrestle with. Others of us, though, we know the big one. There's usually one that's like the king or queen sin that we struggle with more than anything else. It'd be insecurity, it'd be fear, uh, greed, lust, uh, you know, just maybe all those for you or whatever. But let's just say you picked one and you could get rid of one. Think about how freeing that would be. Just how remarkably wonderful it would be to have that totally transformed, removed from your life and heart for good. I mean, just an unbelievable, I mean, I get warm feelings just thinking about it. Like, see, sin doesn't leave you feeling better about yourself. Uh, it leaves you feeling terribly about yourself. And the only way that it doesn't is if you work hard to remove your conscience. As, uh, as talked about, as Paul talks about later, you know, their consciences were seared as with a hot iron. Like somebody who's branded or burned really severely in a spot, the skin goes dead and they can't feel anything anymore, that your conscience can get to be that way. That impacts all sorts of things in your life. You lack the ability to feel. Feel guilt, feel love, feel compassion, feel those things. That's what sin does to you when you don't, when you, when you work hard to get there. Where you're just doing it with impunity. So what he's saying again is, you gotta, if you want to really live, you got to really die. Here's how he puts it in Romans 6, 15 to 18. Well then... Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you became the slave of whatever you choose to obey? So, make no mistake, Christian. If you're choosing to obey your lusts and your sins, you're choosing, that's who your master is. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't you realize you became the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Again, some have never really lived because they never really died, or they're spending their time still trying to obey the law. If I lined up everybody in this room, I'm going to guess a handful of us could actually list the Ten Commandments in their entirety and in order. Maybe five. They did a study on this, actually. 14% of U.S. adults could recall all Ten Commandments in no particular order. Only 71% could name one. I mean, wouldn't you just guess murder? Like if somebody asked you, hey, can you name one? Wouldn't you go, uh, don't kill people or something like that? 29% couldn't name one. The three best remembered were 6, 8, and 10. Murder, stealing, and coveting. Coveting kind of surprises me, actually. While number two, 
forbidding false gods was in last place. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that just talks about how bad people's memories are. But consider this. They asked the same people in the same survey. Can you name the seven principal ingredients of a Big Mac? (laughs) 25% could name the principal ingredients of a Big Mac. That's more than the Ten Commandments. While 35% could name all six kids from the Brady Bunch. Okay, that's twice the number that know the Ten Commandments. So it's not a memory issue. It's a priority issue, right? If we have such a hard time recalling the most famous set of rules from the most famous book in history, what do we remember from the Bible? Stories. That's what we remember. David and Goliath. The parting of the Red Sea. And that of the Son of God going to the cross on our behalf. It's the stories. So Paul doesn't just scream to the people at Rome, knock it off. Stop sinning. He ties them in to a bigger story, the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as a way of helping them understand their own need for death and resurrection. You know, uh, my wife and I, we we just got back from Israel, as I mentioned earlier, and we, we had thought briefly about commemorating it in some way by getting tattoos. We don't have any tattoos. So we thought about it. We didn't do it. Instead, uh, we got rings. So I, I added one to my middle finger here, and it, and it is a jeweler that got on the bus we were on, and he offered to make rings for some of the people that were on there. And mine says, and my, I took my favorite verse of the Bible, which is 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And I had him write the three words, power, love, and self-discipline in Hebrew across the front with my wife and I's name on the inside. Love this ring now. Reminds me of good things. So whenever I'm feeling a little timid, a little whatever, maybe I look at it or make a fist or something, I just remember power, love, self-discipline. That's what the Holy Spirit's supposed to supply me. Now, here's the thing, though. Rings, you can take them off. Well... In the morning, if you're putting hair product in your hair, you may take it off. Go to the gym, lift weights, and it might hurt. Take it off. You just get frustrated or whatever, take it off. Remove it whenever you want. That's why some of you are going, yeah, that's why I got tattoos. Yeah, but those are only skin deep. Um, one of the things I was going to do was I was going to show some of the worst tattoos that people have gotten. Um, they're pretty funny. And uh, ironically, I, one guy has a blockbuster video tattoo. Another one has one that all the misspellings are my favorite. One guy says, brawn to die. And it was like, <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, at no point did the guy doing the tattoo know how to spell born. It's not like you're asking him to spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or something. But tattoos are skin deep, right? And you can have them removed. Not a lot of fun, but you can have them removed. 
baptism is an irrevocable covenant with God. It is something deeper than the skin. It's supposed to be your cross and your empty tomb. I was uh, taken back, one of those spots we saw, we went to Caiaphas' house, the high priest who, of course, uh, tried, they tried Jesus, they, they beat him there in the courtyard. Peter denies him right outside in Caiaphas' courtyard. And uh, then he spends the night in Caiaphas' dungeon, and you can go, they had to lower him with ropes down in this hole, it looks like a well right in the middle of the house, where he sat down in the dungeon. We all went down there and sang uh, down in the dungeon there where Jesus was kept. And then there are two possible sites for the tomb of Jesus and maybe more, but the two big ones. And we went to both. We went to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and then we went to the garden tomb. And both of them were very moving in their own ways. But uh, it piqued my curiosity again for archaeology. And so I was doing some more reading on Caiaphas. And I realized that they had found Caiaphas's tomb in like 1990, I think it was. And that's how many of these things are discovered. They're by accident. That's the thing about a country like Israel. People go mowing their lawn and all of a sudden you uncover like the Temple of Solomon or something by accident. And so many of these things, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, were found by like a shepherd boy who was out just with a goat wandering around. And he's like, hey, there's a cave. And he goes inside and discovers the oldest biblical manuscripts that we have. Oops. You know, and that stuff happens all over the place. And so they found... Uh, Caiaphas's tomb where he was buried. And uh, the evidence for it's really good. Uh, you know, they, it's labeled by his family's name. That particular box of bones has his name on it. And it was during a period where th th those particular tombs were only built for about 100 years during the time of Jesus. So the whole thing fits really well. So they open it up and there are a big bunch of bones on the inside. And I thought about that, and I go, what an ironic thing. When you go back and having just stood on the, at Caiaphas' house, they found Caiaphas' tomb, and it's full of bone. And the one he maligned, his tomb's full of air. <laughs> Nothing's in there. Empty. And the one that he thought had to be killed, could be killed. Thought he had the last word. Thought death was the end. But it's not. It's not the end. Death for the Christian is really the beginning, right? It's the beginning. It's when, and he says in Romans 6, it's when you go down the watery grave of baptism, as the old uh, preachers used to say. Boom, down you go. You're dead, the old self, the sinful nature. And then when you come up, and I know, I know all the reasons people don't do it. Well, I don't think I need to do it. Let me remind you, Jesus did it. That should be enough. If he said he needed to do it to fulfill all righteousness, hmm, you, you probably need it too. The other side of it is, I'm terrified of the water. Okay, I've probably baptized 
thousands of people over the years. I have not lost one yet. We did have one about three years ago in the Pacific. Audrey Mutterman slipped out, uh, one, but we, we recovered her quickly. So don't worry about it. There's a big group of us out there at the ocean. We got her back quickly. Um, there are people like, ah, it's cold. I'm in there too. We're all in there. Yes, it's cold. My hair is going to get wet. Oh, my goodness. Your hair is going to get wet. Some of y'all don't even have hair, you know? <laughs> get in there. Stop being proud. You know what it means to get over your fear of the water? To do it. To look sloppy and wet, sandy, and hair everywhere in front of your brothers and sisters. It's the first step in learning how to be vulnerable with people. They're all going to hug you, even though they're dry and their hair is in a perfect spot or whatever. They're going to come up and hug you anyway. They don't care. So you're going to let that get in the way of you doing that. I, I don't, I don't, that doesn't figure for me. Um, I mean, we had a, we had a gal uh, back when we were at Juniper, true story. Uh, <laughs> I baptized her and her hair stayed in the, in the, in the baptistry when I pulled her up. <laughs> Thankfully, she was a good sport about it. She laughed it off and we put her hair back on top and <laughs> off she went. Uh, but I just, <laughs> I just uh, it scared the crud out of me too. It was a lot of hair. I was like, what the heck is in the, my scary animal? Uh, from earlier in this sermon, but uh, I just, I guess what I'm saying to you is don't be so proud that you don't want to die because of how you think you're going to look in the morgue. Does that make sense? Because the point of your spiritual death is resurrection. It's not how you go in, it's how you come out. And that doesn't have anything to do with how your hair looks. It has to do with how your heart's been changed. So, when the time is right, sisters and brothers, come to the water. And let me say, for those of you who have already been baptized, you don't need to necessarily go and be rebaptized again or anything like that. Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but you don't need to. What you may need to do is realize, okay, I've gone zombie here. Like, I, I, I once was dead, and now I'm walking around as though I'm dead still, but I, I'm not raised to new life. I need to recommit myself. I need to repent. I need to ask the forgiveness of God and rededicate myself. Then do it this morning. You don't need to wait. That's what communion is for this time that we've got. All right? So at this time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'd like to ask those who are passing the elements to go ahead and do so. You should have got them on the way in, the bread and the cup. If you didn't and you'd like some, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll bring it to you. But uh, got one over here on this side. As we remember the body and blood of Jesus, the symbols of death, um, maybe let's look ahead to our own spiritual death. One who 
seeks to save his life will lose it. The one who loses their life for my sake will find it, he says. What profound words. Uh, Today, let's go ahead and take that as God's word to us. Let's ask about how dead we have been. Have we ever really died so that we could really live? Um, If not, then let's, let's head there today. Let's head to the cross. Let him be our focal point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the gift of baptism and how it reminds us of both the cross and the empty tomb, of your son, but also of our own lives, we give you thanks. For Jesus, who gave us those words about life and death and how losing our life is how we really live, Father, we give you thanks. Uh, For the love that you've shown us in Jesus, that bridged the chasm between your righteousness and our lack thereof, Father, we give you thanks. And Father, keep us free from trying to use law as some cheap knockoff of grace as a way to live. And instead, Father, help us to live Um, as risen people, resurrected people, new, inside and out, heart, mind, soul, and strength, so that we can honor you in all we do, because you have set us free from sin, not to it, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.